This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Good to see everybody. How are we feeling? Yes. Oh my gosh, I love it. That was awesome. Great response. Um, I don't know what your history is with church. I don't know what you grew up. Um, you know, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think a common, um, I think a common thought, at least here in Texas, the the Bible Belt, um, which is funny, like the Bible Belt, when Austin is known to be like less than ten percent, um, you know, profess a church connection. Uh, that's that doesn't seem Bible Belty to me. Uh, even like DFW is like less than. Uh, it's like 70% don't have a church affiliation. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. Um, so anyways, I don't know what your thoughts are uh, with church. I don't know what your history is. I think a lot of times we, we, we think of God, we think of faith, we think of church as like, okay, don't do this and do this, right? Like to have a relationship with God, he doesn't want me to do, fill in the list, he does want me to do this. Um, and, and there is a, a part of that, but, but all the things that God tells us to do or not to do is so that we can have a, a deep, loving relationship with him, right? Like there's things that I do and don't do in my marriage so that we can have a deep, loving, intimate relationship, right? Like God is interested in our heart connection with him, genuinely knowing him. Jesus said that he came that we would have life and have it abundantly, Right? Like that is his, his, his hope. His purpose is not just so us to, for us to go to church or read our Bibles or, or do Bible study. Our, his, his hope, his purpose is for us to genuinely know the living God of this world and for that to progressively increase for all of eternity. Right? Like, like that's, that's a different way of thinking about God and faith than I, I grew up thinking about. And so that's our hope. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for myself um, is that we will just progressively know God more than our we can't even imagine at this point. Um, today we want to look at um, our covenant relationship with God, his covenant relationship with us, and, and then how we can ongoingly, that's, that's not a word I know, but I still, it should be, and I just caught myself as I was saying it, it's not a word, but it should be. How we can ongoingly um, grow, thank you Mark for your affirmation, that grow in that relationship uh, with God. And so covenant is, uh, it's an interesting word. We don't use it a ton. Charlie asked the worship team beforehand, like what comes to mind when you think of the word covenants? Like it's just not one that you, you throw out uh, all the time. And so a covenant is a, here's a definition for you, a chosen relationship in which two or more people make a binding promise with one another. Right, so if you want a, cho- a covenant, it's not a contract where like if you break your end of the contract, it's null and void and we go our separate ways, right? Like a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two or more people make a binding promise with one another. It's, it's chosen, right? Like you are choosing to step into this covenant. I am choosing to step into this covenant. And when we do, we are committing to whatever that covenant is and it is not being broken. Like we are holding to this to the end. It's not wishy-washy. It's not flippant. It's not like, ah, I'm not really feeling it anymore. I'm going to take off. Like, no, no, no. A covenant endures through the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, the feelings, the not feelings, all of those, those things. The most common occurrence that I think we probably think of covenant has to do with a marriage, right? Is that what you think of when you think of covenant? It is a, a covenant between a man and a woman 
Um, in, in our belief, when we come from the scripture, when I officiate a wedding, we believe that it is a three-person covenant, man, woman, and God. That, that God is committing to do his part within this marriage, that the husband is committing to do his part within the marriage, the wife is committing to do her part in the marriage, and this covenant is a binding promise until death do us part. Right, so when I officiate a wedding, here is what a husband and wife promises one another, and they are making this promise to God. They say, I choose you as my wife. I choose you as my husband. I'm committed to your joy and well-being above all else. I promise to love you as Christ has loved us through the good days and the bad and the easy and the hard, and I promise to be true and faithful to you alone as long as we both shall live. Right, that's the covenant vows that I lead a, a husband and wife or a man and woman into is they are promising one another and they are making that promise to God that this is the binding commitment that they will hold to until death separates. Right, it gives a foundation for that, that, that couple it gives them this assurance that okay, even when I'm at my worst, right, like this person's here with me. You know, even when, when things change, which, which if you're dating or you're, you know, it doesn't matter if you're married, right? It is, if you're dating, married, engaged, you'd like to be one day, right? One of the, the, the most brilliant truths I learned was well after our marriage. No one told us this. Tim Keller writes it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He's like, hey, people change, like, so you think you're marrying the right person? Well, that person doesn't exist a year from now or two years from now or, or four years from now, right? So if we're standing here and we're like, I'm committing to this person, that person is no longer there down the road, especially when you add in different circumstances and stressors, right? There's things within us that we don't know exist until all of a sudden you've got a kid that is just like driving you nuts. And you're like, I didn't know that my temper was so was so short. Amen? I gotta get an amen? Come on, right? <laughs> She's like, preach, let's go. You know, there's just things you don't know, right? When a, when a job loss comes in out of nowhere and you're like, I didn't know that I was so anxious. You know, there's just things that you don't know and if I'm committing to this person, well, what happens when that person shows up? That's why we see marriages today just bailing left and right because it's like, I don't like that person anymore. Well, you know what? You're gonna marry someone else and the same thing's gonna happen again. And again, this is not a talk on marriage. I don't know where we're going, right? But you know, it's just, I just got going with it, right? And so I think it's good to know. I think it's good to know. And so the covenant says, I am committing to you today and tomorrow and the next day and the version you are down there and the version you are down there and the version you are when you can't take care of yourself and I've got to bathe you and change your adult diaper, right? I'm committing to that person. I'm not going anywhere. But that's a covenant. I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. And you can be safe and secure in that. You are free to be who you need to be and to grow into the person you are because I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Now what, be married for two days, right? Like say this covenant, I think what the last wedding we did was, was Blake and Rosie, right? Like, like say this covenant, this is what you said and, and give it two days later and you're like, dang it, I have not loved you as Christ loved you. I, co I committed to that but I've also already dropped the ball, right? We're going to, to break, to, to disrupt that covenant in, 
in small ways and in, at times bigger ways than we ever imagined. Because we're, we're human and we're, we're broken and we're flawed and so we're going to introduce selfishness into that relationship. We're going to introduce you know, anger or, or, or just sin in any ways and it puts in a hindrance in, into that intimacy of that, that covenant relationship, right? And so we've got to learn as couples to confess our sins. Hey, I screwed up. Let me own that. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We've got to learn as couples to receive that and to give forgiveness so that that connection and that intimacy can grow and grow and grow. And what's amazing is it's actually in the broken parts that we get the depth of our relationships, right? It's working through the hard stuff where we go, man, if we can get through this, whoo, come on with it, right? It's in those moments that God redeems the broken parts and the messes and makes it even better, right? What, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. The beautiful thing of God is he takes our broken parts and he's like, not only is that gonna be okay, I'm gonna use that to make things better. Come on, that's, that's incredible. And so in a marriage, in that covenant, right, we've got to renew our covenants gotta renew our commitment to one another in small ways just by saying I'm sorry forgive me and in big ways working through traumatic events and working through those things but staying committed in that covenant and this covenant of marriage is meant to point to the covenant that God makes with us and that we make with him the covenant of marriage Ephesians 5 says that it's meant to be a picture of the covenant love that God has for his people and then his people have for them. And so, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, right? So if you just start at the beginning and work your way in, verses will also be on the slide. So if you don't have a Bible, all good. If you have an app, that works too, right? But Genesis chapter 15. And so what we need to know of God is that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. That when God says something, he will keep it. Otherwise, he is not God. Right, so God is a covenant-making, a promise-keeping God. And God is the fullness of life. Right, like God exists as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And for all of eternity, God the Father has been giving selfless love to God the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And God the Son has been giving selfless love to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit has been giving selfless love to God the Father and God the Son. The, the, God himself as a triune communal God is the fullness of life. He is the fullness of life. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is the fullness of joy. 100% of you in this room and every human being you know is looking for the fullness of life. We all want to be happy. It's okay to say it in church, I wanna be happy. I don't want life to suck, right? Give me two options, suck or happy. <laughs> Come on, like let's, let's, be, let's be real. We all want the fullness of life because God who is the fullness of life created us that way so that we would go after him who is the fullness of life. Right, so God creates us that way and, and God himself doesn't need us. 
When God created the world, when God created Adam and Eve, it's not because God was lonely. He's like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do for all of eternity in perfect love and harmony and peace, right? God himself was perfectly happy and content with nothing else. But because he is selfless love, he chose to create a world to share his selfless love with. And so God creates Adam and Eve, and he's like, man, we are gonna have this selfless, loving relationship. I'm gonna give the fullness of life to humanity, that they can know this with me. And so that's how God creates the world. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve... This, this, this person has a hat on because I wear a hat a lot, right? So Adam and Eve, even though they've been given everything with God, choose to go their own way. God, I know that you say to trust you and that life is found in you, but this fruit is looking good. And it says that they took their eyes off of God and the fruit was pleasing to their eyes. Right, that's what happens when we sin. We take our eyes off of God and all of a sudden those images are starting to look pretty appealing. All of a sudden, this, this substance that can drown out the thoughts and the fears is starting to seem pretty appealing. Right? And so that's what Adam and Eve did. They take their eyes off of God and they go their own way. And what that does is that it broke this relationship with God fractured it. They, it separated them from the presence of God. And we see that in Genesis 3, that God had to send them out of his presence because God is perfect and holy. And if they are not, they can't be in his presence. And that introduced the brokenness that we have in this world. That introduced the longing, the hurt, the, the looking for happiness because we, we broke it. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. We've all done the same. We've all at some point walked away from what God tells us to do. But God, it says throughout the Bible, is abundant in mercy and steadfast love, and he's generous, and he chose to fix what we broke. He made a promise that he would come and that he would still be our God and we would be his people if we keep our end of the covenant. He makes a promise in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people if you do what I tell you to do, if you trust me and follow me. Here's what we need to know today. Lock this in, we're gonna come back to it. Your relationship with God is dependent on your obedience. Our relationship with God is conditional. Now if you're thinking, time out, this is not what I've heard growing up, we're gonna come back to it. But we need to realize he will be our God and we will be his people if we keep his commandments. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God says, hey, I'm gonna gonna make you my people. And he starts with Abram, right? We, We know him as Abraham. God changes his name later. So if you hear Abram or Abraham, same person, right? God starts with Abram and he says, Abram, I am gonna make you my my people, and your son and your grandson and your great-grandson and so on are gonna form this people that are gonna be my people. Like, we're gonna be in a covenant relationship forever. And eventually, it'll go from, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and so on to Jesus. Right, that's, that's God's promise to Abraham. He says, I will be your God and, and you will be my people if you do what I tell you to do. And it will go from you to your son to your son to your, you know, and so on. And, but in Genesis 15, right, God says, you know, I'm going to do this in verse 8. Abraham says, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
Verse eight, Abraham responds back to God. God makes this promise. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people and it's gonna go through your son and your grandson and so on. And Abraham goes, how, how, can, I, how can I trust that? How do I know? Because if you read before this and Hebrews 11 says it so gently and kind, Abraham was as good as dead at this point. Dude was old. Like just straight old. Pushing 100. You don't have babies. I mean, that's a young person's game to have babies. Right, my kids are like, can we have another baby? I'm like, no, you will lose your father. Like, I will not make it. (laughs) Like, so it's just like, so it says, he's as good as dead and he doesn't have a son. They haven't been able to have a baby. And so Abraham's like, God, how do I, how can I, like, how can I trust this? How can I know that you're gonna actually do what you say you're gonna do? Like, how can I know this? And so God performs this covenant ceremony. So let's read it. Verse nine, God says to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. So Abram brings these to God, cuts them in half and lays each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You're like, what are we reading? We'll we'll, we'll talk about this. Hold on. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the time in in Exodus, right? Prince of Egypt. They will be afflicted for 400 years years but i will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, and so on. Let's explain this. God makes a promise to Abraham. You're gonna have a son, and he's gonna have a son, and so on, and I'm gonna be your God, and you're gonna be my people if you keep my commandments. And Abram's like, how do I know this is gonna happen? I'm almost 100, I don't have a son and so God says, let me show you. Let's have a covenant ceremony. Let me, let me show you my, my word that I'm gonna keep my promise. This covenant ceremony was very common. This was a common practice for how people would make a covenant. It wasn't just two people standing up and being like, I do, I do, we're gonna do this. Um, it, it was a little more intense. They would bring in animals and they would cut the animals in half and kill the animals and make an aisle out of the halves of the animals. You got half of the bull over here, half of the bull over here, half of the goat over here, half of the goat over here. Then the two parties would make the covenant to one another, and then they would walk down the aisle through the animals. And what that symbolized was, if I break my side of the covenant, what happened to these animals happens to me. Right, we're, I agree, I agree, walk through the animals, and if I break my covenant, what happened here to these animals, I'm taking it on me. And so God does that. He says, let's let's have a covenant ceremony. God is very serious about his covenant. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say it, do it. 
He's very serious about keeping his word, and he is expecting Abraham to be equally serious. God's like, I'm in. Abraham, I expect you to be in. And if, if you don't live up to it, this is what happens to you. Right? So, so, but then, did you notice what happened? A deep sleep falls on Abraham. And that's when God stands up and makes his promise, when Abraham's passed out asleep. And then it says in verse 17 that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. That is symbolic of the presence of God on earth. So God, in the presence of a fire pot and a torch, gives his covenant verbally and then passes through the pieces while Abraham is doing what? Sleeping on the side. God makes the promise and walks through without Abraham ever making the promise and walking through. Why? Because God knew that Abraham would never be able to live up to his side of the promise. I will be your God, Abraham, and you will be my people if you trust me and keep my commandments. Let's go. God knows Abraham can't live up to it, and so God makes the promise without Abraham having to walk through it. Because the first time Abraham broke that promise, he would be done. As would his son, and his son's son, and his son's son's son, and so on. And so God makes a promise to Abraham and promises to keep it knowing that Abraham would not live up to his end of the bargain. So in that, you've got God making a promise, but Abraham and everyone else that follows unable to live up to it, unable to to keep their end. So how does Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or you or me, how do we ever have a covenant relationship with God? If we can't live up to the expectation, how do we do it? How do we have that intimate connection? Which leads us to the New Testament and the new covenant, a covenant of grace. Grace is a free gift that we don't deserve but it's paid for by someone else. Grace is a, a free gift. You can think of it, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a free gift that we don't deserve. So we are expected to live unto, to keep our side of the promise. But you and I both know, give us 15 minutes, I can't keep up with it, right? We can't live up to the standard. And so Jesus, God himself, comes and does for us what we cannot do. He lives up to our side of the covenant in our place. He lives a perfect, trusting life, never breaking the the promise, never breaking trust in God the Father. And so the expectation that Abraham had and Isaac, that you and I have to live in a perfect relationship with God, Jesus does it for us. And then he dies on the cross because something's got to suffer the punishment for breaking the covenant. Something has to be cut and killed in order for the covenant to be justified. You and I deserve that punishment that the animals took. Abraham deserved it, but instead Jesus was cut so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus was killed so that we don't have to be. So God upholds his end of the covenant and our end of the covenant 
through Jesus. And then in the resurrection of Jesus, he offers us a way to be restored back into covenant relationship with God. If Jesus is still dead, y'all, let's pack it up. Let's head home. Let's just go get brunch at Snooze. Right? There's, there's no point. But because Jesus is alive, that means God is alive. That means that you and I can actually have a living relationship with God, and it's all done through what Jesus has done for us. God keeps his side of the promise, and Jesus comes and keeps our side for us. And when we trust him, when we, Jesus says, repent and believe, stop trusting in myself, Jesus, I am trusting you, and I'm going to follow you. It says that he sends his spirit, the spirit of God comes and lives in us so that we can actually live in a covenant loving relationship with God. We have the power of Jesus, his Holy Spirit in us to do this. I can say no to sin. I can love God. I can move closer because his spirit is in me. And this is the gospel. The good news that God has come in Jesus to fix what we broke. God has come to, to hold up our side of the covenant and to give us by grace a new life with this is the new covenant of grace. And so Jesus invites us to lay down our lives, to stop living for ourselves and to trust him. Now, now here's the deal. In the New Testament, right, we see like, oh, what, does that just mean I can do whatever I want? I believe in Jesus, I trust Jesus, and now I can just live however I want because, you know, Jesus is gonna take care of it for me. And, and the Bible says, gosh, no, you, you, you've not really trusted in Jesus at that point. You like the idea of Jesus, but really, your God is yourself. This is how I lived until I was 15. I wanted heaven. Hell was bad. I don't want to go to hell. Gosh, no. So yes, I'll take heaven, God. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me heaven, but I'm still going to be in charge of my life. I'm still going to live life my way. I'm not going to submit it to you and trust you. And God says at that point, you don't actually know me. You are your own God. And so we trust Jesus and we surrender our lives to following him, just like in a covenant marriage. When I'm married, I no longer live like I'm single. I'm covenanting my life to live as a husband. If I want to live like I'm single, I don't get married. If I want to live for myself, then I don't tr I'm not trusting God. But when I trust Christ, I'm giving my life to him. What you say goes, I surrender all. I cannot hold on to God and myself at the same time. I cannot say, yes, God, I love you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, but I'm gonna hold on to this sin for myself because I really like it and I'm scared to let it go. It's, it's an all or nothing thing. And so my first question would be, have you truly trusted Christ and surrendered your life to him? If you've been raised in this area in our country, you've probably heard about Jesus, right? So it's very easy for us to know about and even cognitively believe in Jesus. It's a whole nother thing to trust him and surrender our lives to him. God, I believe you are so true that I will do everything and follow you. And so here's, here's where we come today. When we enter that covenant relationship with God, right, when we enter into that, 
It, it's like a marriage. We, we enter into a covenant relationship with God, it, it, to, into, into a husband and wife. I am standing here committing to these things. I am not thinking, I'm committed to you, but I'm going to also live my single life. That is not a real covenant. That's, not, that's a lie. That's a sham. So when I, I'm surrendered to you, but the reality is I am going to drop the ball again. I am going to stumble. We are going to fall down in our human relationships and also in our relationship with God, which is why in our marriages we, we confess, we repent, we, we put away the things that bring enmity and hostility in our marriage. And the same is true with God. I trust you, Jesus. I, I am going to live my life to you, but we're also still going to stumble and fall. And so God invites us again and again and again and again to confess our sins to him to repent and return, not because God is going to beat us up with condemnation and guilt and shame, because he, but he's inviting us into abundant life. Come back home. You, you've run away and you've spent all your money and you've wasted and you've chased things and you're living in, in the pig pen. Come back home. And what does the father do when we return? He runs to us, he embraces us, he hugs us, he kisses us on the cheek. I mean, he, he throws a party, he doesn't condemn or shame because we've fallen down again. He picks us back up and he says, let's eat. Let's celebrate. But the, the devil does an amazing job of just keeping us oppressed with our guilt and shame when Jesus has already paid for it in full. And so the invitation today and tomorrow and, and, and every day is for us to confess our sins and repent and return because God the Father is waiting to return us into places of restoration and refreshment. He's not holding back from us. He's not hiding from us. He's not trying to beat us up. Do we trust him? Will we return to him? If you want to turn from Genesis to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation, we see that Jesus writes these letters to seven different churches. And we're not gonna read through it all and go through it all, but these, these churches are representative of, of churches today, of Christians today. And the overarching theme of these letters to these churches is to repent and return, to stand firm in your faith. But we see, I think, in these churches many things that, that we oftentimes fall into. And so I just wanted to skim through four of the seven because I think that they're, they're, they're where we can most likely find ourselves. And I want us to hear what God's invitation is to them because it's the same invitation to us. Repent and return. Repent from what you think is life and return to true life. And so in the first one, the church in Ephesus, in Revelation chapter two, verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Those first two verses are incredible, right? God's like, y'all are crushing it, well done. You are doing good things. You hold tightly to truth and to doctrine. You're, you're patient. You, you, can't, you don't tolerate sin. But, verse four, verse four, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a church, these are people, man, that they are crushing their religious checklist. Just straight dominating it. Wake up, read my Bible, gotta love you, help me today, check, boom, they go. Bible study, got it, check. Sunday morning service, check. I need to go serve here, check. I need to give here, check. Right? They are crushing their religious practices and duties, and God's like, mm -mm. your heart is far from me. You know how to show up and sing the songs. You know how to show up and, 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 and be present and, and look the part, but your heart is far from me, and God is infinitely more concerned with our hearts than what we do on the outside. And so for some of us, man, this is it's so easy for me. I, I can't remember a day where I wasn't in a church, where I haven't believed in this. It's so easy for me just to get in the practices and the routines, but for my heart and genuine love for God and genuine love for others just to kind of get pushed to the side. And God's like, no, no, no. Return to your first love, the love that you had for me and what I've done for you. And so maybe that's you today. Right, that you, you know you're just going through the motions, but your genuine heart connection with God is far. He's like, return, come back. Come back. Next church I want to look at is to the church in Pergamum in verse 13. Oh. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Y'all, I'm not going to lie, I feel like that's Austin. I'm, I'm for real, I feel like it's Austin. Austin is a spiritually dark place. It is a spiritually dark place. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Right, like you're, you're standing firm, you're holding fast, even when there's persecution around you and there's people that disagree and they're oppressing you and they're pushing their agendas and they're pushing their ways, right? Like you're, you're standing firm in your faith, you're not giving in, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. He says, you've got, a, you've got people here who are compromising. They still believe, and they're holding fast to faith, but they're also okay with bringing in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They're, they're tolerating just a little bit of sin, it's just, a, just a little bit of sexual immorality. He's like, man, you, yeah, you're surrounded by darkness and, and you're still the light. You're holding true to your faith in Jesus, but you're starting to compromise. You're starting to look a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more like the world and less like Jesus. If that's not American Christianity, in many ways. And Jesus says, repent. Don't compromise. You give the devil an inch and he'll take a mile. Not all at once, but one inch at a time. 
Don't compromise. Repent from anywhere that you've compromised. The next church that we're going to look at is a church in Sardis in chapter 3. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, you have a church, and you have people that on the outside looking in, you you would have no clue. They looked apart. Everything looks right, but inside, they're dead. They're flatlined. They're just flat. They, 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 it looks like they're alive, but they're, they're not. They're just sleepwalking. He's like, wake up. And man, I feel that's so true for myself and for, for, for our context and for this city and for the, the church in America. It's like, wake up. Like we've been lulled to sleep by distraction and by busyness. We've been lulled to sleep by our Instagram feeds and our Netflix binging. Like we're lulled to sleep and, and we don't even realize it. And he's like, wake up. There's eternity at stake. There's real life in his presence at stake. And we're like, I don't know. I want to check this out, right? Like, let me snap somebody. Can't lose my snap streak. And it's not that those are in and of themselves sinful, but they lull us to sleep. It's a weight. It's a weight that is slowing us down, and God's like, oh my gosh, I think we're going to, I don't know what it's going to be like when we stand before God in heaven one day, but I can imagine we're going to be like, oh my gosh, I cared about that? No! Wake up. He says, repent from those areas where you've just kind of dozed off and fallen asleep. It's not life. It has the appearance of life, but it's not life. Can I say that again to a culture that is always looking for life? It's not life. It has the appearance of life, but it's not life. Wake up. Wake up. Repent and return the last one that I want to look at is just the church in Laodicea, the end of chapter 3, verse 15. This one doesn't get a whole lot of good things said about them. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Cold water has use, hot water has use. Lukewarm water is just gross. Right? I don't want to drink it. I don't want to shower in it. He's like, you're neither hot nor you're cold. You're just, meh. You're just lukewarm. Why are they lukewarm? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They don't realize how needy they are. You haven't realized that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's like, I don't need anything. I'm happy. I'm good. It's sunny most of the time. Weather's great. I can go hiking. I can get a craft beer and a sandwich. I've got friends over here. I've got things to do. And they're like, I don't need anything. And come on, let's be honest. Like, yeah, like, there's hardship, but 
by and large, we don't need anything. We're, we're pretty good when it comes to life here, but we don't realize that eternally and spiritually we're, we're, we're naked and we're poor, we're wretched, we're pitiable. We don't realize how needy we are before a holy God. We don't realize that without Jesus, we have nothing. We just want to depend on our own strength. We just want to walk in our own power. Like, I can do this. Let me roll up my sleeves and get to work, and it's going to be just fine. We're good. We're good. We're good. We don't realize that we need him. And the invitation, verse 18, to come buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see to those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone answers I'm coming in the invitation from Jesus is to return and repent and when we do he's like come on let's go the door is open when we genuinely open our hearts and repent, Jesus will not turn you away. It's not gonna be a partial door where he says, let me show, show me what you got. Show me this time that you're gonna live up to it. You're on probation, right? You got a short leash. When we return and repent in genuine repentance, he's like, come on, let's eat. Come on in. And so the the call is for us to repent and return because that's where life is found. It's, it's, it's from Genesis to Revelation. It's for today. It's for tomorrow. It's for me. It's for you. It's for everyone. Turn away from yourself. Trust Jesus. Let go of the sin that we're holding on to and trust him. There is life to be found there. We talked two weeks ago, right? Cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Cut your foot off if it causes you to sin. Gouge your eye out if it causes you to sin. It is better to live with the consequences than to let sin remain in your life. It is better, Jesus says, multiple times in that one passage. His plea for you is not to do better and be a better person. His plea for you is just to repent and return to him. He'll take care of everything else. He'll change us as we go. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.